I want to try to capture an experience that may be relatable, maybe not the particulars of what I'm going to tell you, but the actual overall experience is hopefully relatable. Imagine you're 10 years old, it's June, school has just gotten out, and the entire summer is stretched out before you, like a blank sheet of paper, these endless days, and you're going to fill it with your friends, it's going to be full of playing. And this particular day, all your neighborhood friends are in your front yard, and you're, you're eating freezies, it's just perfect, the temperature's perfect, the situation is perfect, the sunlight, everything. Your dad set up a hammock in the front yard, and like all children in the history of time, you didn't use it to relax, you used it to launch one another. And so you got in the hammock, and one of your neighborhood friends pushed you as high as he could push you, and when you were at the zenith of the swing, you jumped out pretending to be a superhero, and you were going to land like Spider-Man in a dramatic pose. And you did this dozens of times. But there was this one time you did it, and if you could slow motion the moment, and there'd be sticky freezy on your face and on your hands, and the sun would be shining, your friends were all there, and you were flying through the air like a superhero. This is the perfect moment. This is ideal. This is everything you ever dreamed of as a 10-year-old. Summer, sunshine, friends. And then, gravity falling, landing, but this time you land wrong and you both feel and hear something like a tree branch snapping. Your friends tell you later that they could hear it as well. And the next thing you know, you're laying down in the backseat of your mom's car while she's driving you to the ER. And the doctor gives you two rules as he puts on the splint for the next couple weeks. And they're not anything you want to hear at the beginning of your summer. Number one, keep both feet on the ground. No flying through the air. And number two, no swimming. Now, most of you know that I'm talking about Liam at the beginning of this summer, and I was away from home at the time, but when I came back and he's got this little splint on, he's just so sad and angry and disappointed. As a parent, you can't solve that problem. I mean, you try because you want to do things like, buddy, hop in the car right now, we're going to Disneyland. But there's really very little you can do. So, so he's angry and he's sad and he's disappointed and it's all rolled into one, and you as a parent are pretty helpless. Now, real quick, just a little side, side note. After two weeks, uh, they did give him a waterproof cast. And I'm telling you, we live in a world where there are driverless cars and tourism in space, but the waterproof cast has been the thing that has blown my mind more than anything else. We were at the picnic last week, and Liam's swimming in the pool, and there were people whispering around the pool, and they're like, I don't know. His parents are right there. I guess it's okay. I don't, I don't know, I think. Now, I don't know that anybody anticipated how much Liam would be swimming because there's parts of his cast that are soft. So we'll see what happens when he goes to the doctor this week. Hopefully it's all better. Now, life gifts us these almost perfect moments, but then it seems like there's always something. It's like a bug in your glass of iced tea, or maybe it's a toothache during a delicious meal, or it's cold rain on your, your beach day of your summer vacation. Now, for some people, it's way more serious than that. Those are just minor inconveniences. It sounds like an Alanis Morissette song, but some people have real serious things that happen. Maybe they have regular reminders of losing a loved one or, or crunch 
chronic illness or trauma or maybe a family medical history. So every time that they get a headache, they're like, is this the headache? And I'm, I'm not advocating, I'm not telling you here this morning that you should be a pessimist and you should, you should ignore the, the bright moments in life. Because I'm personally, I'm a fish, a bug out of the iced tea kind of personality. And I'm, I'm the type to tell you once I do that, like, oh, it added flavor. Like, that's my personality. But I'm just trying to point out that in life, we have these almost perfect moments, but there's always something. I mean, life is often really good, but there's a reminder that it's not perfect. It's not complete. It's not full. We're finally, finally at the end of the book of Revelation. I didn't realize at the beginning of studying the book of Revelation how much I needed this book. I mean, I feel like over the last five or six weeks, it has revitalized and re-energized my faith. It really has to just think of the world around me and life as I know it in these much bigger terms that there's so much more going on than I recognize on a, on a daily basis. It's, it's really tremendously made a difference in my faith, and I'm, I'm thankful for that. So whether or not it has for you, maybe a different question, but it certainly has for me, and it can for you, and it should for you, because he's revealing something that we forget all the time. So we've tried to make the point that Revelation is not a doomsday manual for the end of times that should send Christians running for the hills after we pack our Armageddon bag. That's not what Revelation is about. It, it reveals a reality that should energize Christians. You should get done reading the book of Revelation and just want to run through a brick wall for Jesus because it's revealing a truth that is good and powerful. We're not cowering in the corner. We're not waiting for the end. Christianity is exploding in the world. So Christianity is not on the decline. It may be on the decline right here in our little neck of the woods, but it's not on the decline in the globe. And sometimes the reason it may be on the decline right here in our little corner, in our little neighborhood, maybe us, maybe our faith hasn't presented itself in powerful enough ways. Maybe we haven't been the light that God has wanted us to be. So we're not, we're not cowering. The gates of Hades will not prevail against us. It's a wonderful truth. But as we get to the end of the book of Revelation, and the classic idea of the end of the book of Revelation is what is next. I mean, this is, this is the part of the book of Revelation that it's not confusing particularly. It's not controversial. People love it, and they spend time digging through it, trying to understand what it means about what's coming next, what's up for Christians. Now, I'm going to tell you a classic preacher joke. And it's the kind that should make your eyes roll. It's the kind that you've probably heard if you've grown up going to church. You've probably heard this exact one, the one that's been used in millions of sermons. I apologize for using it beforehand because it's the kind of joke that I do not like to use in a sermon. But I have a point. A preacher is preaching about eternity. He's preaching about paradise. He's preaching about what's next. And he sees that the crowd isn't really into it. They're not getting excited. They're not as excited as he is. So he stops. He's kind of annoyed with the audience a little bit. But with a little bit of anger in his voice, he's like, who wants to go to heaven? And the crowd doesn't exactly know what to do. And so there's a few people that raise their hands, you know, the kind that will always raise their hands for everything. But no, nobody else does because they're not sure what's being asked of them. So just a few people raise their hands and he gets even more annoyed. Like, are you telling me? Come on, raise your hand if you want to go to heaven. Well, at this point, everybody gets that in order to calm the preacher down, they're going to have to raise their hands. <laughs> Except for a kid in the front row. Doesn't raise his hand. 
And so he's going to make an example of this kid. And he says, young man, are you telling me that you don't want to go to heaven? And the kid from the front row responds, well, sure, someday. It just sounded like you were getting a group together to go right now. (laughs) Now, classic, I know, classic preacher joke. Even if at the end of this sermon, you would only give me an F plus. Is that a thing? We should make it a thing. But at some point this morning, there should be a part of you that wants to go right now. Like right now, when you're thinking, wait, no, I've got some other things to do on my to-do list. But I think if we we peel back the curtain just a little bit and get a glimpse of what John is trying to portray about what's next, there is at least a part of us that if there's a bus going right now, I'm kind of interested in getting on that. A vision for the future that energizes the present. That's what John is trying to do here. He's not trying to get us to say, hey, forget this life here and now. He's trying to present a vision for the future that energizes the present. Before we dig into this section of Revelation, we have to dispose of some mental baggage that we have. Uh, We have cartoonish notions of heaven that aren't very helpful. St. Peter as this uh, maitre d' at the pearly gates, right? And I don't think anybody in here thinks this is really what it's going to be like. But this is really all we have as a culture to grab onto about eternity. We don't have much vision for it. So what we want to try to do this morning is get a little glimpse of the text that just really what John is trying to do uh, to really try to understand what he's going for. So this is what we're going to do. We're going to look at a snapshot of these two chapters at the end of the book of Revelation to see what John is trying to accomplish. What's he trying to teach us? So what he does is he describes this future reality in three different ways. So Revelation 21, 1 through 8, he talks about a renewed creation. Revelation 21, 9 through 27, he talks about a city. And Revelation 22, 1 through 5, he talks about a garden. And all three of these are different descriptions of the same reality from different perspectives. You could kind of think of it like a Google Maps. You can see the whole globe, but then you can zoom in on like a particular geographic area. You could, you could zoom in on a country, you could zoom on in a city, or Google Maps has this amazing feature where you can do street view and you can go right down to street level. And it's kind of cool. So think of it like this, like John is giving us this big overview and then he's zooming in a little bit and he talks about this bizarrely designed city and we'll talk about why it's designed that way. And then finally he zooms in on street level and you see a garden. So let's talk about the first section. This is what he talks about in Revelation 21, verse 1, a renewed creation. He says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. And this is kind of important. This is just one of those things that I want to lodge in your brain. As you explore how the Bible talks about eternity, this is the language it uses. It doesn't say we die and go to heaven. It says heaven comes to us. It's pretty interesting. And there's a lot there that we would like to unravel at some point. Anyway, Revelation 21 verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven, the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. Kind of weird. No beach stays in heaven. The sea was a catch-all way to describe anything that was uncontrollable or chaotic or scary. We might say something like the storms of life. We might use a phrase like that to describe hard times in life. It's probably something difficult, some struggle. And they use the concept of the sea to talk about that. And John's saying, none of that's going to be there. You're not going to have the storms of life there. You're not going to have the sea there. Hebrew people 
people were not seafaring people. It kind of freaked them out for the most part, with the exception of some fishermen who Jesus hung out with on the Sea of Galilee. But remember, one of the most significant miracles that Jesus did was to calm the sea. And there was a lot of metaphorical significance to that. Anyway, so this section we have the familiar, he's going to wipe away every tear, there's going to be no pain, and, and all those images come from Isaiah 65. So John's not making this stuff, this stuff up, he's, he's drawing from Hebrew Bible comparisons. And then John zooms in, Revelation 21, verse 10 and 11, and he says, And he carried me, this is an angel, and he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city Jerusalem. Again, coming down out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God, and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like jasper, as clear as crystal. And then there's this super bizarre little section. I don't have it on the screen, but it's all these twelves. All, the, the wall of the city is 12,000 stadia long, and the city walls are 12,000 stadia high. Some of your translations, if you read it, they'll translate those into American miles, but it totally obscures what John is trying to do. He's saying the city is a perfect cube. It's a perfect cube. The, the number 12 signifies the people of God, the organization of God, the tribes, the 12 apostles. And so he's saying there's going to be this perfect place where all of God's people are. And he's just using all this, this metaphorical language to describe it. Is it going to be a big cube? I don't know. But interestingly, there is a cube described in Scripture, and it's the Holy of Holies in the temple, a perfect cube. And this is going to be the place where you are with God. That's pretty awesome. So he's writing to first century Christians. So he's saying the most extravagant thing that he can think of. Hey, all their streets are made of gold. He might describe it differently if you were talking to 21st century Christians. Maybe he would say something like, there are no red lights in heaven, or there are no HOA fees in heaven. I don't, you know, he'd say something different, but this is all out of Ezekiel 40, almost, almost verbatim. He's again, he's importing ideas from the Hebrew Bible. And then finally, he digs down into this garden level. And it, to me, this is 22 verses 1 and 2, it's so satisfying that the Bible starts and ends with the garden. It's so cool. It's just like this perfect literary, you know, it's, it, I love it. It's the tree of life. There's no curse. And of course, this is all Genesis 1 and 2. And these passages are great places to spend time in, in tough and confusing and painful times of life. These passages are a great, you know, if you're going through something hard, there's been millions of Christians who have sat down and read through these and said, okay, I can handle this because I've got a future reality that is just so much better than my current reality. But what, is, what does John want us to experience? Because some of us might be reading that and we're like, okay, I don't know, new heavens and new earth, that's fine. It's weird cube-shaped city, that's fine. A garden, I don't know, I'm kind of indoorsy, I don't know. It's fine, I suppose. Maybe none of you are excited about this vision of heaven. What emotional response is John trying to elicit with this idea? Well, all three descriptions highlight the same two themes, the same two realities. He highlights what is there and what is not there. We're going to talk about each of these. What is there? Revelation 21, 3, Revelation 21, 22, and 23, Revelation 22, verse 3. All these descriptions, he says, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people. And all three times he talks about, hey, God is with, God is present, God is there. Now let's talk about this for a second, because I think we read that and we're like, okay, that sounds good. You know, fine. I, I guess I would prefer to have God there than not, but I don't think anybody's like, oh, get me on the bus to heaven right now. I don't think anybody reads that and be having a, a deep emotional response, which is fine. So let's talk about this for a second. 
Several years ago, I went to Cuernavaca, Mexico. I got a picture of it. I've not been everywhere in the world. There's a lot of cool places I've been, but it is the prettiest place I have ever been. I have ever traveled. And this picture, like, it doesn't even do it justice, but isn't that, a, you're like, oh, that looks like a good place. I would go there, right? Some of you are like, if there's a bus going, I will go. It's very pretty. It is not only a very pretty place, their highs year round range from about 72 to 79. Some days it gets really hot and it might break 80, you know, some days the, and the lows are down in the 60s. Some days it might get really cold and, you know, 59. It's beautiful. The temperature is perfect. The flowers are blooming constantly year round. There's palm trees. It's just this gorgeous place. Everything's, it's just perfect. So when I was there, we were exploring, is, is this a good location for a second children's home, the children's home that we partner with uh, in Cozumel? Is this a good location for this uh, a second location. And so what we were tasked with is just exploring the city, which I'm like, this is, I love this. This is so awesome. So we arrived in Cornavaca on a bus and you get off the bus and they're like, explore the city. And so I turned left and there was a city park and it was the coolest city park I have ever seen. They could have filmed the elven kingdom from the Lord of the Rings in this city park and not needed any CGI. I mean, it was just this mind blowing place as you just wander through there and you you're like, oh, I feel better about who I am as a human being. Towering trees and this lush foliage. It was just unbelievable. At a concrete table in the middle of this place is this elderly gentleman who is hand drawing comic books. Everything about this is surreal. And so I'm standing there watching him and he's watching me watching him and I don't speak Spanish. And uh, so he speaks to me in English and he starts a conversation with me and he tells me about his life. And I have truly found the most interesting person in the world. You can forget the commercials. This is the guy. He's talking to me about all the different things that he's ever done in his life. And I'm just like, how do I live a life like you where at the end of my life, I end up in the most beautiful part in the most beautiful city drawing comic books. It was just amazing. But at the end of this conversation, he said, this is the part I want to highlight. He said, have you ever heard of cars that don't have drivers? And I'm like, driverless cars? And he's like, yeah, yeah, driverless cars. He goes, I invented those. And part of me was like, ah, you know what? I believe it. <laughs> I believe it. Everything about this setting, I believe it. And he said he worked for IBM at one point in his life, and he invented the technology that's now used to, to create driverless cars. I don't know. Is he telling the truth or not? I don't know. But it was so cool to be in proximity to this individual that had lived the life he had, but had done the things he had. Something about being around him. And you've had relationships like that before, where you're around that person, and they are life-giving. You feel more energized and more excited and more aware and more present because you've spent time with them. What does it mean to be in the presence of God? God says, hey, you like sunsets? You think sunsets are cool? I came up with that. That was my idea. Thank you. Mountain ranges? You think those are pretty? That was me too. You like, uh, you like Sunday afternoon naps? Hey, I invented those. Every taste of every food that you've ever had that has ever gone into your mouth and you've ever rolled your eyes back in your head and said, this is so delicious. That was created and dreamed up and thought up by God. God did all that. The human capacity to have fun was God. The fact that you want to put yourself on a roller coaster and ride around an amusement park, that was God. God came up with all of that stuff. Unconditional love, God, grace, God, forgiveness, God. That's God. 
You want to be around this being that generated all this beauty and this creativity and this goodness, and he's the source of all life. Being around a being like that would just blow your mind. And so when Revelation says you get to be around that being forever, no wonder people's hearts are starting to open up a little bit. They're starting to soften a little bit and say, ooh, that sounds pretty interesting. You're with the source of everything that is creative and good and beautiful and true. I've told this story before, but oh well, because there's new faces here. So if you've heard it, whatever. Um, I was buckling my foster son into his car seat. Uh, He was probably four years old at the time. And as I'm buckling him in, he hears the jingle uh, of an ice cream truck coming down the road. He doesn't know what it is. And so he looks, and he can't turn to look. He asks, uh, what's that? And I just casually, without thinking, I just say, oh, that's the ice cream truck. No no thought in my head. Now, this kid is a happy kid anyway, but you could virtually see dopamine and endorphins flooding his synapses when I said those three words, ice cream truck. He's thinking, whoa, I love ice cream and I love trucks. Are you telling me we live in a universe where two of my favorite things somehow combine into one glorious entity? He didn't say any of that, but you can see all that happening in his brain. I mean, that's amazing. And it made me pretty excited. You know what, buddy? Ice cream trucks are pretty cool. They're a little spendy, but they're pretty cool. And I can see why that little tinkling of the jingle as the truck comes down the street brings out that desire in you to experience that. That's pretty. That is a pretty cool thing. Augustine wrote in the City of God, he wrote, If these are the beauties afforded to sinful men, what does God have in store for those who love him? If God has allowed us to live in a world with ice cream trucks, man, what does he have in store? What kind of things does he have waiting for us in a perfect new heaven and a perfect new earth? Sometimes... You have to temper your expectations to avoid disappointment. The world to come, the new heaven and the new earth, will be the one time in the history of mankind where what you are served looks better than what is on the menu. God says you cannot conceive, mind cannot fathom. And that's why John has to do the best with the words he has. He's like, it's, kind of, it's, like, a, it's like a new heaven and a new earth. It's like a, it's like a brand new city. It's like a, a beautiful lush garden. He just has so much vocabulary to work with. But what he's trying to tell us is that the mind cannot conceive what God has in store. A vision for the future that energizes the present. Now me, when I think about that, I'm like, yeah, okay. Look, I got some other things I want to do, but I'm kind of excited. That bus going to heaven sounds intriguing now. I'm pretty interested. But John's not done talking because he says it's not only about what is there, but in all three descriptions, he talks about what is not there. And this is crucially important, church, what is not there. It's the flip side of the same coin. Because let me warn you, what I'm about to tell you is going to feel like crashing to earth and breaking your arm after flying through the air like a superhero. But it's important to address because on three separate occasions, John says, you're with God. You're with the presence of all goodness and beauty and truth. You're with him. But then on all three occasions, he offers this warning to the audience that's hearing this read. Revelation 21, verse 7. Those who are victorious will inherit all of this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. But 
the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, all liars. Revelation 21, verse 27, nothing, nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful. Revelation 22:15. outside of the dogs, oof, those who practice magic arts, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters. And some of you are like, I don't practice magic arts. I have never even read Harry Potter. <laughs> but then he says, everyone who loves and practices falsehood. Oof, well, maybe. Maybe I've told some lies. Maybe I've presented myself as something that I'm not. And what John is accomplishing and what you should all experience is like, oh, unfortunately, I think I fit somewhere in that category. I have done things that fit within that category. And it's, it's, a, it's a weighty thing to think about that conviction and that guilt. Now, we have the mistaken idea that there's just certain kinds of people that God doesn't like. He just doesn't want certain kinds of people around. Ooh, gross, I don't like those people who practice magic arts and the cowardly. Ugh, I don't like them. I don't want them around. I don't want them in my new heaven and new earth. But, but nothing could be further from the truth. That's not true in any way, shape, or form. God has been clear throughout his word that he loves everybody. So let me preface this story I'm about to tell you is this, this is not an illustration of hell. So this summer at camp, we had a giant bonfire at teen camp. I've got a picture of it here. This is Jake and Avery. You could only get so close to the fire. But Jake's expression on his face was saying, this is burning me. This is hot. So I was like, oh, whatever. How bad can it be? And so I'm like, I am going to try to get clo as close as I can to that fire, kind of slowly make my way to that fire. It, your body short circuit your cognitive abilities. You stop being in control of your own body. You can, you can get so close to that fire and your eyes will shut, whether you want them to or not, because your body is saying, hey, dummy, the eyeball fluid is going to start igniting. You need to stop. And so your eyeballs will shut. Your lungs will not allow you to inhale air because your body's like, hey, stupid, you're too close. You're going to burn your lungs. And as you try to walk close, your body has this physical reaction to getting too close to this source of heat. You just can't do it. You can't do it because of science, right? Now, the fire was not being mean. It wasn't being exclusive. The fire was just being what it is. It is what it is. The cell structure of my body was not equipped to process the temperatures it was being exposed to. God, when he says none of those types of people are going to be in the new heavens and the new earth, is not being exclusive or mean. Do you understand? He's not being cruel or vindictive. He's saying those things are so contrary to everything that I am, to the very essence of who I am. They have nothing to do with me. Sin cannot exist in proximity to God's goodness. It just can't get close. It's not able to get close because of the incredible, overpowering holiness of God. And so the only way for us to get close to God is if God would make a way. And good news, he did through Christ. 
That's the only way we have to get close to Christ. Not because God hates us or thinks we're terrible or rotten or horrible, but because sin cannot approach him. It just can't. And so there's going to be this eternity where sin is melted away and all that is left is this goodness and this holiness that longs to live close to God. See, God will make everything new. Jesus will make us new. This is really important. And I think what John is saying, like, hey, Jesus will make you new, but you guys that want to mess around with the stuff that is anti-God, you can't expect to be with God. That is a choice, and God will respect that choice. And God loves you so much that he will not force himself on you. He will let you choose distance. He will let you. So you and I, we have a perfect future to look forward to. There will be some day when a 10-year-old is at the beginning of June and he's in a hammock and his friend is swinging him as high as he can go and he leaps out and he just keeps going. There's no break in the arm. There's no mourning or crying or pain. There's none of that. We have a perfect future to look forward to. There's no 3 a.m. phone calls. There's no empty spot at the dinner table. There's no trauma to talk to a therapist about. There, there's a perfect future but that perfect future requires sacrifices in the present. But here's this is why it's so important to think about that we are grabbing onto a vision of the future that energizes our present choices. And if we don't have this desire to get on the bus and be in eternity with God, well, then it's no, it's no wonder that we're living the lives that we often choose to live now. Because we don't have a desire to live any differently. The choices that I make now are bringing the new heaven and new earth into existence where I am. I am making choices to live like this new reality where the presence of God exists and sin cannot. I love that idea. It's a challenge to me to want to live that way where people who are around me experience just a little taste of what it would be like to live in eternity. I mean, just a little bit where they walk away from me feeling better or feeling more joy. I would love that. I would love that if our church were like that. If, if people walked into, into our church building on a Sunday morning and they walked away saying, I don't know about everything, but man, I felt like I was close to heaven being around those people because they were like God. So we can choose that or we can settle for now. And there still will be good moments. The rain shines on the just and the unjust. That's the kind of God we serve. There'll still be good moments, but that's it. This is it. Or we can look forward to that future reality. We can look forward to getting on that bus and being with God forever.